uh, our passage for today is Colossians 1, 9 through 14. So I encourage you to uh, either turn in your Bibles or open up your uh, bulletin handout uh, to this text. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Uh, the writing of the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae, uh, but more deeply, it is the inspired, infallible Word of God. Paul writes, And so from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we commit this time to you. We commit our listening and studying and perceiving and receiving of your word. Our Father, we know that we need, in order to be good listeners of your word, uh, the measure of your Holy Spirit that you would grant to us in illuminating our thoughts and understanding, uh, giving us what we need for your word to be most effectual to us unto our salvation and sanctification. So we pray for that. We ask for that. We know that you give it generously and abundantly because you bless your people with your good gifts. And the greatest of gifts that you've given to us, besides your son, uh, the word of God made flesh, is your written word, uh, the word that you've committed to writing, that we might have it today as our brothers and sisters of old, our spiritual ancestors had, uh, the very word, the word that has come from your mouth, from your lips, and come to us, that we might know your truth, and that we might follow it, that we might live for it, in honor of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, you can see the sermon title, uh, The Summation of the Christian Life in Five Points, and I'll say why that is um, a good title. Uh, and a title that will be useful over the next couple of weeks. But really, I need to say the beginning of the summation of the Christian life in five points, because we're not going to get through all five points today. That shouldn't really surprise you uh, in terms of what often happens when I come to a passage. It begins to open up and explode a little bit for me, and what I plan to do in one message winds up being more than one. But as we begin, I want us to think about uh, some phrases that often go along with a new year. When people began about um, talk about you know starting over, so always there's like this New Year's resolution kind of thing. But I'm thinking about the kinds of stuff that's happening sort of in our world today because of the pandemic, and I'm thinking about what's happening in the American political scene because of responses to all that. So on, on the global scene, you've heard the phrase the Great Reset, right? I mean, it's not common; it's not everybody talks about this, but political theorists and economists. Uh, they look at the uh, what's happened to, because of the pandemic and the impact upon global economics, and so they talk about this is the time for the Great Reset. Now, to be honest, I don't have a clue as to what they mean by this Great Reset. 
But somebody out there thinks they know what they're talking about. And so it's, it's part of the language of, of, of the day in terms of the global economy. On the American political scene, we know that the current mantra is three Bs, not bed, bath, and beyond, which is the three Bs I've always known about, but it's build back better, right? That's the mantra of the day, build back better. But what both of these share, uh, the Great Reset and build back better, is this common idea with respect to the new year. And it's essentially this. Uh, the new year gives us the opportunity, because there's always the need, for a redo. There's always a need for a redo. A new year starts, we look at the past year, we look at the past things we've done, and we say, you know, <laughs> all the things we tried haven't quite worked. So let's start over again. So we have a new plan for the culture, new plan for society, new plan for the economy. Because all the stuff we've done before hasn't really worked. And so out there, in all the self-help world, you have everything about reinventing ourselves, people talking about you can do a personal reset. Let's start over. Let's deconstruct so we can reconstruct. Let's build back better. And let's repeat this over and over again until we get it right. We expect this kind of repetitive and incessant starting over because it's the nature of a broken and fallen world. It's never going to get it right. However, we shouldn't expect this kind of thinking and this kind of expectation for the church or for Christians. We must see things differently as Christians, believers, as the church itself. We must always be repenting. We must always be reforming, but never resetting or reformulating who we are or why we are. We don't need to. Our identity and purpose are permanently set. So in coming to this new year, I would most strongly suggest this, that we do not need as Christians any great reset, nor do we need to build back better our Christianity. Rather, we need to rehearse the biblical truth, and we may need to repent in order to return more fully to biblical truth, we may need to reform biblically, personally, with respect to what we believe and how we behave in accordance with biblical truth, but we must never feel that we need to reformulate or reset the identity or purpose of the church or of the Christian life. So with respect to this conviction about identity and purpose being permanently set, time and again, I have found this prayer of the Apostle Paul to be the best statement in short order of who we are and why we are. And this brief passage, which is you know, six verses in English, two complex sentences in the Greek, the Apostle Paul, within the format of prayer, sets forth a statement that virtually summarizes the Christian life in five points. Five identifying points or principles that sum up the church and the Christian life. 
Now, the fact that we find these five points in the Apostles' Prayer and the prayer in a prayer itself has always struck me as significant. So think about it this way. The Holy Spirit inspires Paul to pray these particular points and concerns for this New Testament church that Paul himself had never visited, but the reports about the church had reached the apostle and they were favorable. Yet also great concerns. This mostly Gentile church is under an attack of false teachers. And Paul has to correct some very daily errors in the rest of the book of Colossians. But the, but the fact is that Paul prays these things first. Which means that everything else that Paul will say in this letter has this prayer as the preface and the setting. And that is because what Paul seeks for, these Christians, he seeks for what is most basic, what is most fundamental to our lives as believers in Christ. And that's how I want to begin this new year in terms of church life, with a re-examination of Paul's five points. Five points that summarize our Christian lives and faith. Now, as an aside, of course, these five points are more fundamental than our tulip five points, which uh, are important. And uh, really, when we come to the fifth, fifth of these points, we could say, well, we can find those ideas there. Uh, under the first point, well, I could go on and on about all the correlations between what Paul says here and our historically reformed faith. The point is that for church life, for our personal lives, uh, what the Apostle Paul gives here in prayer are also principles. And so we can translate what Paul prays into principles that because he prays for these things, it's right that we would seek and possess and own these things as intrinsically necessary, once again, for who we are and for why we are as Christians. So the main idea, the overarching theme for today, and really for the several messages that I have planned and intend to, to preach and present on this passage, the overarching theme can be stated this way. When you and I as Christians are faithful to what the Bible teaches us about who we are and about why we are, we never need to reset the direction of our lives, but rather to simply recommit to living the revealed Christian life more faithfully. And let me just state that again. If we understand what Paul says here, if we're deeply committed to what the Bible teaches us about who we are and why we are, it's never the case that we need this kind of New Year's resolution to do some great reset with respect to the direction of our lives. It's not necessary because what is necessary is simply to recommit to the kind of living, to the kind of truth, to the kind of believing and behaving that we find revealed to us in the Christian life in the scriptures. Now, with respect to what Paul prays, uh, his uh, five points of prayer can be stated and translated into these five principles. First, we have a manual for the Christian life. Secondly, we have a mandate for the Christian life. Thirdly, we have a mission for the Christian life. 
Fourthly, we have a model for the Christian life. Fifthly, we have a message for the Christian life. And so, my, like I said, my original intention was to cover all five of these today. But uh, having worked through the first point this week, I realized there would be no room for the second, third, or fourth and fifth points. And so we're going to focus just on the first point today and next week on the uh, second point, on the mandate, and then hopefully the third Sunday we can cover the, the mission and the model and the message. All understanding this, if God so wills, if God so wills, this is how we will carry out uh, our coverage of these verses over the next few weeks. Now to begin with, and this is coming out of verse 9, but here is the first idea, the first principle. We have a manual for the Christian life. Now, if you're familiar with the Shorter Catechism, uh, question and answer number three, uh, speak about the scriptures. What do the scriptures principally teach? And the Westminster Divines gave us this answer. The answer is, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. In other words... We have from God in writing what we need to know in order to know him and, in, and, and to know how to live for him. We have from the Bible the scriptures principally teaching us what we're supposed to believe about God and then what duty God requires of us. So to know God and to live for him. We have this manual from God and it is the Bible. Now, this idea is really the implication of verse 9, where Paul speaks of in his prayer that he's asking God to fill us with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But you might protest and say, wait, uh, this verse says nothing specifically about the Bible. So how are you jumping to that conclusion? And that's fair. So, Let's trace out the connection. Let's trace out the connection between what Paul prays for in verse 9 and the scriptures. Paul's prayer is based upon the principle and the truth that God fills the believer with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit wouldn't inspire Paul to pray this way or to write this way. So we have to ask this question, how? How does God do this thing? How does God do what Paul prays for? How does God do this filling of the believer with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding? How we answer that question is exceptionally important. And we should recognize that there's only two viable options Either God does this filling in what we would call an immediate or direct fashion, or God does this filling in a immediate fashion through the means of something else. So let's consider the first. We could say, well, uh, the way God answers this prayer is God does it immediately. He does it directly. Uh, that's what Paul means. We might think that's what Paul means. That is to say, God fills every believer directly, immediately, from his mind to theirs, which is to say, God directly implants in the mind of every believer all knowledge of his will, all spiritual wisdom, and all understanding. And then that would necessarily lead to the next question. Okay, 
how do we know if that idea is true? That is to say, how do we test that this is, in fact, the correct interpretation of that idea with respect to this verse? And, and, and we do need to test this idea in some manner because there have been those within the Christian tradition who claimed that this interpretation is, in fact, the true interpretation. For instance, think about the Quaker tradition. The Quaker tradition believes that God speaks to the believer by an inner light directly. An inner light directly to the believer's soul. And some within the Quaker tradition, though not all, uh, believe that this direct speaking of God to the soul always took precedence and priority over the Bible. That is to say, uh, there was a certain movement within Quakerism that essentially believed that God gave direct revelation, God's mind directly speaking to the believer's heart. Now, to be historically accurate, this is not the majority of the Quaker tradition. The majority of Quakers actually believe that every so-called inner prompting, inner light prompting, had to be checked against the Bible. Which means that even within the Quaker tradition as a whole, the Bible was always the ultimate source of the knowledge of God's will. The Bible was ultimately the, the ultimate source of all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So even within the majority Quaker tradition, uh, it makes the Bible the ultimate source for the knowledge of God's will, God's wisdom, God's understanding that we need. Or consider, in a more recent fashion, the charismatic movement. Even the most charismatic among charismatics will believe that when God directly reveals something to the human heart, it nevertheless has to be tested against the Bible and with what is in the Bible about God's will and what the Bible teaches about spiritual wisdom and understanding. So this idea that what the Apostle Paul is saying is a direct filling, God's mind to our minds. Well, no Protestant Christian movement or any Protestant tradition has ever really officially taught this. And further, we could also say that it's never been a true part of any kind of real Christianity and belief or in practice. Now, if I were to defend that claim, I'd have to have us rehearse uh, all of the reformational battle between the Protestant movement and the Roman Catholic Church, because ultimately we're talking about the ultimate authority of the scriptures. But we can understand that within the Protestant tradition, no one has ever said, well, God just simply fills us all directly. You know, his mind to our hearts. And that's what this verse is all about. No, that's just not the case. But here's a more significant point in church history and our tradition. This God's mind to the believer's mind is simply something that Jesus never taught and Paul never taught, and the New Testament never taught, but rather they taught something else in its place. In fact, they always taught us that God imparts to us, God fills us with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding 
through the means of the Bible, through the scriptures, that it's God's word that works this way. Think about our examination of the high priestly prayer last Sunday. John 17, 17, the Lord Jesus said in praying for his people, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now, recognize the very heart of sanctification, the very heart of spiritual growth is the knowledge of God's will and spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so the Lord Jesus is praying for the very means by which we would have the knowledge of God's will and the very means by which we would have the spiritual wisdom understanding, and it is the scriptures. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The written word of God. Or think about the classic statement by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, so it's the Apostle Paul who prays this prayer that God would, would fill us with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, who essentially says then that the means by which this takes place is the scriptures, because the scriptures are breathed out for God to accomplish all of these things, for the teaching of God's will and the knowledge of his will, for reproving us uh, against the standard of the knowledge of God's will, for correcting us to be in conformity with the knowledge of God's will, for training us in righteousness and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that way may be a little bit equipped, no, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So according to both Jesus and Paul, according to the whole testimony of the Bible, we necessarily read Paul's prayer, his first petition, as a statement about what God does for us through the scriptures. It is by means of the Holy Scriptures that God fills us with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It is the Holy Scriptures, which are God's word, God's truth, which make us wise unto salvation. It is the word of God that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, which discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So the Bible teaches about itself through the words of Jesus, the words of Paul, Hebrews, Peter, the Old Testament, Moses, David, that God's word is the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. That God's word is firmly fixed forever in the heavens. That God's testimonies make us wiser than all of our teachers. That God's word gives us life since we have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. That we live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And this is why we can say, that the revealed life that we are to live as Christians is first and foremost anchored to this truth, that we have a life directing, a life instructing, life guiding, authoritative manual for all that we are to believe and for all that we are to do. And this is the Bible, God's word in written form our infallible rule and authority for faith and practice as a believer in Christ. So, 
we have this manual from God. Now what follows from this? What do we take out of Paul's prayer as the principle for who we are and why we are for our faith and practice? Well, the principle is this. We need to live out of the manual. That is to say, we need to live out our lives every day by the book, so to speak. Daily emphasis. You know, whether we call it our daily devotions or daily quiet times or daily Bible reading, God has given us a manual to live by, and it needs to be our daily habit to read and study it in order to follow it. But why? Well, let me answer this way, and those who are teachers will identify with this very, very easily. Uh, as a teacher... I have literally, maybe not literally, maybe figuratively, hyperbolically, but I have tons of experience giving assignments and instructions to students. And with those assignments, uh, I've always experienced a common, common concern because of a common, common problem. And that is students fail to read the instructions. Students routinely fail to read carefully the directions that they're supposed to follow. And students who fail to read and fail to reread and fail to read again and again the instructions for an assignment, especially for big assignments, they always fail to understand the assignment in some manner. And they always fail to complete the assignment faithfully. I can stand in front of a class of students and tell them this. And I can predict there's going to be three or four or five of you in this class who will not pass this assignment because you will not read the assignment carefully. There'll be something so significant that you miss when you turn this project in that I will not be able to pass you. It doesn't matter if you forewarn them. Well, maybe it does matter because maybe some take it to heart. But here is the reality. We fail to understand what we are to do because we fail to give the assignment and the instructions sufficient, necessary attention. Now, all instructors find this to be a common problem in terms of education. All bosses who have people working under them who are responsible for giving out job assignments and tasks and new projects, find that this is a high percentage of why things don't get done the way they're supposed to get done. People fail to read carefully. People fail to pay attention. People fail to rehearse what they're supposed to know. How much more so in the Christian life? That is to say, if this is a natural bent that we have as human beings, to fail to get it with respect to the assignment. When everything that springs out of spiritual warfare on the side of the demonic opposition to who we are as Christians, when everything is aligned against us, how much more so this is the problem in the Christian life? That we don't 
understand things the way we ought to understand them, to the degree that we ought to understand them. And so the Apostle Peter, we can read how he is all about repeating himself and reminding Christians of things they, they already know or things that they're supposed to know. So, 2 Peter chapter 1, 10-13. Peter writes this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these things, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I always intend to remind you of these things, though you have known them and are, in a, are established and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder. So, essentially, Peter is saying that we as believers need repetition. We need repeated exposure to God's word, to God's truth. We need the constant reminder of the things that we receive from God's word. We need to constantly remember who we are and why we are. We are God's redeemed, saved, justified by the blood of Christ. Our chief end and purpose is to live for the glory of God and to find our deepest sense of life and meaning in the enjoyment of God himself and of all of the blessings he's given to us. But we need to be reminded of these basic truths about God and ourselves all of the time. We need to read the manual daily. But it's necessary as well for our spiritual growth. The word of God is constantly necessary for us so that we would grow in God's grace, that we would grow in all aspects of our salvation. Again, listen to the Apostle Peter, listen to his strong exhortation to believers. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, the English Standard Version, pure spiritual milk, is literally, in the Greek, pure milk of the word, which fits the context. Because Peter is speaking about the living and abiding word of God, which has given us our new birth and life in Christ. And Peter says, we need to long for this spiritual food, which is the word of God. Now, you can also look at it from the level of what a youth pastor might say to his youth group on this particular subject. Okay, um, I've been in this situation. I've done this kind of stuff. Now, a long time ago, like you know, almost half a century ago, but I did have to say these kinds of things to youth groups, to young people. So, on this subject, why do you need the Bible? Why do you need to read it? So the point is made this way. So, students, do you know what seven days without reading the Bible does to you? It makes one week. Spelled... W-E-A-K week. So the idea is you go without reading the Bible and you will begin to spiritually dry up. Whether we are seniors in high school or senior citizens, this is absolutely true. Jesus said, quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 to the devil, man does not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. We need to live out of the Bible as our manual of the Christian life for the sake of growing spiritually. Now, I want us to think about that as we begin this new year. It is if we need to do this. If, if any of us need to recommit ourselves to the Bible as a daily pattern to live more faithfully out of God's word, God's manual written for us. Here's what I would say. Let's give ourselves to this needed repetition of God's word in our lives. Let's, let's recommit ourselves to our daily Bible time. Let's be like Mary, so much more than Martha. You know the story in Luke 10, 38 to 42. The disciples and Jesus are there together. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to Jesus. And Martha's in the kitchen, busy in activity, preparing the big meal for Jesus and his disciples. And she complains. And the Lord Jesus says to Martha, 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 you are worried and distracted about so many things. But what Mary has chosen is the good part that will not be taken away from her. Essentially, Jesus was saying to Martha, Martha, it is far more necessary for a follower of mine to be attentive in my presence, learning from me, than it is to be actively engaged in my service. What's first is foremost, spending time in the scriptures that testify to the Lord Jesus Christ. Spending time with the word of God. Reading the Bible in order to live out the manual. Now, some practical advice in this regard. All of us have Bibles or computers access to the internet, which means we have access to all kinds of biblical resources. <clears throat> and this can be true with respect to our daily time with Christ in the Bible. But I want to point us in a particular direction. I'd like you to try this for this coming year, at least for a season. Divorce yourself from every devotional book or every devotional reader that you might have used in the past. And instead, read the Bible directly for yourself and meditate upon it directly. And if you want help, which we all do, if you're reading in the Psalms, I will recommend only one person to you, Spurgeon and his Treasury of David. You can find it completely unabridged online. And if you're reading any other text of the scriptures, I will recommend, without fear, the unabridged work of Matthew Henry. If you, if you need something to help you as you read, and we all do, read these men, older men, incredibly deep men, who will always, in a trustworthy manner, take you back to Christ and the exaltation of Christ and the building of your spiritual life in him through the scriptures. I trust these men for devotional help more than any other. So what I'm saying is this. The first point 
the first principle in Paul's prayer is that God fills us with the knowledge of his word and all spiritual wisdom and understanding through the Bible, his written word. And we need to give that written word our daily attention. Because we are not those who come to a new year and seek for some kind of new reset for our lives. We are those who come to a new year and we may realize that we need to repent and return more faithfully to biblical truth. We may need to reform our thinking and behaving back toward biblical truth. And we may need to increase our rehearsing of biblical truth by more faithfully reading our Bible every day. But we don't need a reset. We don't need a new calculation of who we are and why we are because we are anchored to Christ. We are anchored to the gospel. We are anchored to the authoritative word of God, which is the manual for the Christian life. And so Paul's prayer would be our principle that we will study this manual of the Christian life in order to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, may it be so as we go into this new year, as we think about the world around us where the foundations are so shaken and being destroyed in so many ways, that our confidence would be that we are dwelling uh, with the eternal God, that you've been our dwelling place in all generations, and that who we are and why we are are always anchored into Christ, and that how we live, what we should live for, how to direct our lives, how to understand it, it's there given to us in an authoritative manner, but in a manner that we can comprehend in your word. And we thank you for Paul's prayer, because we thank you that in this prayer itself, we have a summary of the most essential principles for how we are to live, that which Paul prays for, that which we ourselves should seek to own and to possess and to follow. And we pray that as we go into this new year, for the glory of the name of Christ, we would be faithful in our Bible times each day to meet with him, to learn of him, to follow him. Because we know, Father, that apart from the Lord Jesus, we can do nothing. So in his name we pray. Amen.